Welcome to The Mystic and the Skeptic, the show that asks the tough questions and explores different alternatives to today's pressing issues, theories, or enigmas. It's a podcast devoted to the exploration of all things mystical, philosophical, scientific, political, conspiratorial, and cosmic. Join us in an exploration of the mystic skeptic mind space. In this week's show, our guests are Bob Hayes and William Claude, both members of the Lawrenceburg, Tennessee Historical Society. Our topic is an alternate history of the Civil War and the roots of the Confederate battle flag. Our first interview is with Bob Hayes. Let's start from the beginning. Um, uh, talking to the co-host, uh, Ryan Radigan, he was sharing a little bit of what he knows of the history of the Civil War uh, as compared to the mainstream view that I was raised under in high school. So he was sharing that it appears that the real conflict was a war of secession as the, um, the other colonies of the other states were trying to become their own country and that the federal government decided to uh, do like a preemptive strike for that not to occur. Is that a more accurate picture uh, about the Civil War as compared to saying that it was just about slavery or other issues? I would say that uh, there are many issues, but the one issue, it was interesting, there was a strong sentiment that wanted to become a separate nation. Uh, they had felt there were they were two essentially different societies. One was a predominantly agricultural society, which was very international-minded. Frankly, they traded with a lot of countries cotton and tobacco in the world and other products. And it was more of a it was more of a feudal society than the northern states were. Uh, there were you know plantations, large farms. And although they had their, they had some industry there, you know, its main crops were things that really needed to slave, really needed slavery to survive, you know, well. Or they felt they needed slavery. The majority of Southerners were not living in plantations and wealthy. They were more or less poor whites. And they, they wanted, you know, they had smaller farms and they had areas and they worked in different places but they were a little bit different from the the real ruling elite of the South, which was a uh, you know edu- fairly educate, educated people, and they they were dependent on the feudal system, this feudal system of slavery, and they were one thing that it's been brought up by several historians: cotton farming takes a lot out of the soil. And there was a movement, let's advance, we need to go into the West. And they wanted to go into the West. Um, in fact, as they were in the South, there was a great push, this even many years, many, a number of years before the Civil War, for the Mexican War. They wanted to make sure Texas was, was American, and they wanted to be able to have slavery in Texas. Uh, this was one of the reasons for the war with Mexico, the Texas insurrection, Mexico didn't like slavery. They opposed it. They didn't want it coming into Texas or anywhere in Mexico. You know, it was just went against everything they believed in. That's interesting because growing up in Mexico, um, they never really talk about slavery, but we know that they used the indigenous people as slaves, Mm -hmm. but based on, um, 
a caste system. Sure. And there was slaves that were used in Brazil and other places sure. um, coming from the Portuguese uh, slave trade. So mm -hmm. I'm surprised that at that time the Mexican government wasn't supporting slavery. Well, they did not like the idea of the slavery advancing into their country. Uh, they were influenced by a lot of ideas, including the American Revolution and the French Revolution and you know of Europe. And many of them felt and you know didn't like it. Um, and they felt like it wasn't as necessary there. So that was a, one of the causes, really, of the Mexican War. If you study history carefully, the Whig Party of the North opposed, and many of the working-class whites, they were not necessarily against slavery, but the idea of expanding slavery into the western states like Illinois and Indiana and some other states they did not want it expanding into their areas because they wanted, these were small farmers and they wanted to be, they wanted, you know, they did not want slavery expanding. Lincoln was a voice for these people in a lot of ways. Lincoln um, is an interesting president. He lost most of the elections he ever ran in. But Lincoln was a strong opponent of the Mexican War. I remember a few nights ago when this guy, you know, we may saw this guy interview talk to Bernie Sanders. Well, you were against this war. That was not unusual. Lincoln was vehemently opposed to the Mexican War. It cost him a seat. In fact, he used to say, show me the spot where Mexico fired at us, and they couldn't do it, when he was a Whig congressman from Illinois. The idea that all these slaves running around free in the South, they had heard about a place called Haiti, where there had been a massive slave rebellion and they were, you know, it scared them. They said, you want us to become another Haiti? In fact, what they call posses in the South, and many counties have them, was actually one thing they hoped to do. If there's a slave rebellion, we're going to be ready. Men, men were expected to serve in the posse in some of these southern states with predominantly black populations because they were afraid of what would happen. And that was one thing even non-slaveholders might support slavery because they wanted to keep it a white man's country. And that is just a, a, a sad fact of history. They encouraged free slaves. Basically, you know, free slaves had very, in, in the South, and some of them had earned their freedom or had were given freedom. They were really, you talk about second class, they weren't even citizens. They were slave, there were patrols that patrolled, and if they saw an African-American or family out walking, they, they wanted to see, do you have a pass? Who are you here for? It was a pretty, pretty restricted system for them, you know, free slaves in the South. But it was interesting that they, and the South was always afraid, or the Southern leaders of that group were always afraid of a slave rebellion. And they, Haiti scared the fire out of them. You can understand why. Uh, if you've ever read about what happened in Haiti, it, it was a pretty... There were massacres and everything going on. It was all it was what's now Haiti and the Dominican Republic. It was it could be a pretty pretty serious. And they also worried about Cuba. Some Southerners wanted to take Cuba and turn it into another slave state, but it never happened. There was you know they they also one time Southerners also tried to conquer Nicaragua and had a man from Nashville who was. Actually, it was governed by a man from Nashville named William Walker. I don't know if you've read about him. He was a, a doctor and a very, very interesting man. But, you know, this, there was always a desire to expand slavery into certain state, state countries. 
you know, these things were happening in the American Civil War that as the, as the North grew wealthier and the South did, different societies, although it should be pointed out that a lot of the slave trade originally in the 18th century had been conducted by New Englanders, slave ships from New England, northern merchants and things involved in the slave, even in the South. They had investments in it. Abolitionists were not always popular in the North either, as you may have known. They, there's one case in Illinois about a, a lynching of a man named Elijah Lovejoy for being an abolitionist. There were abolitionists in Tennessee, and some of them had to flee. There was a, the com, there was a newspaper, an anti-slavery newspaper published in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Uh, these were more representing the more mountain people up there. Some of them were slaveholders themselves. They were, but they did not want to see. They did not. This led to the division of East Tennessee, leaving the South. They didn't want to become part of a great. They called it a slaveocracy, an aristocracy. They were mountain people. They did not want to be dominated by the slaveocracy. And Andrew Johnson was one of their leaders, and another one was Parson Brownlow, who was a Methodist preacher turned. Now, these, they were not what you'd call, they were not really abolitionists. Andrew Johnson was himself a small slave, hold, hold, owned several slaves. But they were wanting, they were wanting to be separate. Uh, East Tennessee, it's interesting that they didn't go like the route of West Virginia, which became a separate state, because they did not want to. And they also had a strong urge. They did not want to see America divided into two countries. And that... That's what a lot, I think that was the motivation of a lot of people who fought in the federal armies was they did not want to see their country broken up. In the South, they, many Southerners who even non-slaveholders, they felt like they were defending their homeland. Slavery was a secondary issue. During the Civil War, it got to be more of an issue. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Andersonville about the prisoners. The Federal prisoners of war in Andersonville, Georgia, which is a notorious prison the Confederacy ran. Both sides did not have very good conditions for their POWs. Uh, what they wanted was, uh, what they were con concerned about was, uh, they did not want the, they did not, you know, they, 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 they didn't want to, they wanted to, they wanted their right to, to own slavery and maintain their system. There was division in the South and in the North within the, I call the Confederate and Union states. There were people in the North that really didn't want to be in the war, and there were people in the South that did. And at Andersonville, they got mad when Lincoln got more under the pressure of one of the great black leaders of that day, Frederick Douglass, and who had a lot of influence on Lincoln as the war continued. And Douglass was very concerned about what happened to POWs. You know, what happened to black POWs? A lot of them had been shot immediately. He knew it. And, you know, Lincoln said, until I got into counting of them, I won't do any more exchanges. And a lot of the, a lot of the prisoners at Andersonville got very angry about it. They, if, you see, they, if you see the movie Andersonville, you'll see they say very racist things about it because they were not primarily interested in ending slavery. This, got, this became more of an issue. Lincoln hoped with the Emancipation Proclamation that there'd be slave rebellions in the South. But there weren't that many. There were some. 
and a lot of African-American soldiers, when the emancipation, a number of them joined the Union Army. And they were, it's, uh, it was depicted in one special movie called Glory. And it talks about a, a black regiment from Massachusetts. It was, was an outstanding unit in the Civil War for their side. <coughs> but things like that happened. So the South was really more interested in, they, thought, they saw themselves as defending their homeland. And the North saw it as this is a war t- to keep our country from breaking up. I remember talking to my father, who was the grandson of a Confederate soldier, and he was at, he and my mom were visiting uh, Gettysburg one time on a trip. And Dad said, well, of course, you've got to have a feeling for the South. That's what he's, but I say, if they had won, this country would have split up and Think about think about all the all the problems we've faced since the Civil War. He said, "I think we we're better off being one country." But you know, he there were people that you know really wanted to secede from the Union. That was one of the things that Lincoln, when he passed the Emancipation, he was thinking of Emancipation Proclamation. He was thinking about that because I think he honestly did come to a position where he never post supported slavery. He had, like a lot of people in that time, had racial attitudes. I think his his attitudes softened a lot. He wanted to, you know, there had been a free nation set, set up in Africa for free slaves called Liberia. It, it didn't work real well, but it was there. He knew the president of Liberia, but it was... Uh, but that is, a, that is an interesting connection between the United States and the African country of Liberia. It was set up originally for freed slaves from the United States, like Sierra Leone, which is close, was set up for, you know, free blacks in the in the British Empire. But uh, let's talk about alternative histories because um, yeah, sure. I guess this is an alternative history way you just shared because people try to um, simplify and make it sound like it's just about one issue. But the other side of the argument is this idea that people. Um, People would say that they're still battling for their homeland. They still have like a a very distinct heritage here in the South. Yeah. So, what would you say about their views that um, they shouldn't be um, misjudged? They shouldn't be um, labeled as uh, keeping those racial elements from the past. What would you say about modern Southerners who are very proud of their heritage and they have no problem with the the flag and they have no problem with standing up for their heritage. Um, like everybody, they have their opinion, but how strong is their case for not being labeled and not being judged on their stand? Well, I think there is a, a defense in the southern states, having been spent most of my life as a southerner and been here, that things are changing real rapidly in the south. And they are. Um, it's, it's changing a lot. And there's always been a feeling that, you know, people have a heritage here. The Confederate flag, unfortunately, has been misused by certain people, uh, where it was just a historic strike. But in the 50s, it also came to emphasize resistance to desegregation. The state of Georgia, for example, changed their flag and put the Confederate battle flag in their state flag. Uh, Things like this have been happening and some people really feel like 
you know, you're attacking the flag, you're attacking me personally. There's an identification. Curiously, I don't know if they a lot of times know a lot of the history, but and some things are true, but I think there's a, some people feel that, you know, this is an attack on them personally and their heritage. And uh, ironically, I don't know, you know, and there's been places people go outside the South and they feel very insecure. I did too. I went to New England one time. First time I went, I felt kind of insecure. I just, there, and there's funny jokes about it, but it got identified with race too, unfortunately. Um, and I think this is true, tragic. Uh, the Confederate flag sometimes stands for other things, like a lot of you know bitter racism. Uh, one group, the National States Rights Party, used it. They fly it at Klan rallies. They places that you know, you know. I can understand why other people feel very concerned about it. I can understand why the people in South Carolina, you know, even some descendants of Strom Thurmond and other. Southerners felt like it's time to take it down. And there's been a movement. So you know. if there are some people who are using the flag, misused it, like, like you said, and they, they are uh, hijacking the symbol, like a lot of people would say, uh, is it fair to want to get rid of the symbol that other people uh, enjoy and love without having that racial bias to go Well, that's, that has become a difference. And... Of course, there are people, unfortunately, racism exists here, and there are people that are very racist, and they do think that's the way, you know, they always say them blacks are trying to take it down. You know, it is sad in some ways that I've seen some a lot of Confederate flags on truck, and you do see it used in the wrong ways. And that's one of the tragic things about this Confederate flag. It, it gets identified with some of the wrong things. People... I say to people that feel, try to understand both sides of that. When you see it used by the wrong people for the wrong purpose, it's not just a historic thing to them. I mean, how would you feel when you see some a car flying that? They may identify it with oppression, you know. So, so let's get back to alternative histories. We have some books here. We have America's Ten Worst Presidents by Nathan Miller. We have um, People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. Yeah. We the People by Leo Huberman. Yeah, that's a classic. The Underside of American History. Yeah. Who wrote that? Uh, by Fraser. Yeah. And Lies Across America by James W. Lewin. Lewin. I recommend his other book, Lies My Teacher Told Me. It does talk about, like any country's history, it has its dark side. We all. I don't care what culture it is. It's, I've never found one where... I've never found a nation of saints yet, but but it. Uh, I do think there's some things about slavery that people should listen. One thing I'd recommend to a lot of in Zen's book, a lot of Southerners consider reading is called a people. There's a chapter called a people of mean and vile condition, and this is about poor white people in colonial America, and how some of them were considered pretty lower class. Uh, in fact. I think my own ancestry is what they call indentured servants. And they were a little better than slaves, really. There's a book called White Cargo, which I think is really worth reading about some of the people, you know, that were brought over supposedly as indentured servants. They came from the worst slums of England. Uh, 
originally the state of Georgia was set up as a utopian colony and it then became a slavery area. Oglethorpe did not want slavery in, in Georgia originally, but it came. So one of the books you recommended, it's called A People's History of the Civil War, Struggles for Meaning of Freedom. Yes, um, right. That's a very interesting book about the South. Well, I uh, did some research on it, and there's a review by the Kentucky Historical Society by Andrew Coopersmith, where he says that uh, the book is flawed in many ways, and one of his critiques is that he uh, he tries to pin the, the callous politicians and greedy power brokers from the Union and the Confederacy against the ordinary people that fought uh, the war. So he makes it about a class struggle. And I know Howard Zinn books uh, often have to do with that. You mentioned that at the beginning of the show that there was uh, some of that. But what the, the reviewer says is that there was a lot of uh, common people or people with no power that were very... Um, happy and very willing to participate in the war. Oh, yeah. And, and it wasn't just all these people being forced to by the rich people. It was actually, there was um, a great move and like a, almost um, like the patriotic thing to do is to join oh, the yeah. battle. There, you, you have this with any country when it goes to war and you had your leaders saying it was a war and you felt like your home was being attacked or your community and that is, I would say that that criticism he has, he's probably showing a fairly conservative bias, a bias about it. But a lot of your little people did go to war. They were excited about it. Did you ever see the movie Coal Mountain? Yes. In Coal Mountain, you remember they were all marching off. We'll be back in a few weeks. Okay. The war lasted a lot longer than they expected it to. Uh, we the that book, uh, People's History of the Civil War, shows. In the South, there were places where the Southerners just finally went home. They never really formally surrendered. They just went back because the war was getting worse and worse. And the South was an agricultural country filing a highly advanced section. But I do agree that I think on both sides of that war, you would find a lot of very gritty politicians, (laughs) too. There were some people with good intentions, but there were... People that really had, you know, they, you know, it's kind of funny about mentioning about slavery. The movie Glory. I don't know if you saw that one. Right. One of the characters in Glory that they were in, would, was marching with Shaw, who was a hero of commanded black troop, had been a Southerner from Kentucky. We owned slaves in Kentucky, but he was commanding black troops. You know, they figured he understood them better, probably, but. Uh, you know, this was happening. There, there, there's. When you study history from different viewpoints, you got to realize that some people are going to see it, you know, in a little different light. Of course, I guess I'm showing my bias. I see the other side where there was a lot of, you know, a lot of suffering by both peoples, uh, North and South. It was, um, you know, it's funny how it happened after the Civil War. One of the best guerrilla fighters the Confederacy had was a man named in the Shenandoah Valley named John Molesby. He turned into a Republican, which was the clever collaborator party of that day, and became an ambassador to China with the federal government, in the, you know, with the American government. What year was this? This was after the Civil War. His name was John Molesby. Okay, so let's, let's go back in time. And um, we were talking about the, um, 
Star Spangled Man, the Americans tend towards presidents, and you're saying the two of them were Republican, two of them were Democrats. Right. So, so let's go back in time and what were the Democrats uh, standing for back then, and what were the Republicans' uh, platform? Because it's different than now. Yeah. So when we say they were bad Republicans, bad Democrats, according to the standards back then. Yeah. Or according to our standards of who's good and bad, but um, what were they? Like, is it true that the Republicans were the anti-slavery party back then? Yes. Uh, there were a number of abolitionists who were attracted to the Republican Party, and their first candidate for president was John Fremont, who was from California, and he was an, he was opposed to slavery, and they were willing, they were, you know, they were committed to ending the expansion of slavery and eventually slavery. And uh, they ran in 56, 1856. Uh, the Democrats really were trying to prevent, a lot of them didn't particularly, well, they didn't, some of them didn't want to see the expansion, but they thought it should be left up to individual states. And that's what Stephen Douglas, uh, you know, believed in. He was one of, you know, Lincoln's major debaters. But he, he was definitely... And a number of Southerners, both Buchanan and Pierce, really didn't really didn't want to have a war over slavery. They were trying to, they, in their own way, they were trying to hit it off. They were not very effective leaders. That's all you can say about them. Uh, and they were just not the best leaders you'd find. Now, when I say one's a Republican, Andrew Johnson is interesting. He he no, he was a basically a Jackson Democrat, but he opposed. He was nominated by the Union Party. Nobody knew much about him. They knew he had been a loyal Union man in the South, and they thought that would be a good match with Lincoln. Poor Andrew Johnson was just out of his league. He has been rumored to be an, a drinker. That's been... I, I don't know all the story about it, but Andrew Johnson, he angered a lot of Southerners because after the Civil War, there were people that said, let's... Let's really make it hard on the South. And it, you hear South talk about Reconstruction, and there's a, another historic silent film called Birth of a Nation. It glorifies the Klan. And it tries to present that viewpoint. But curiously, there were a lot of things happened during the Reconstruction. People came into the South and just wanted to make money. And they bought property here in the South. And they did, there was, there were black government, there were governments, quite a few blacks in the legislature. But as far as I know, there was never a black governor in any of those states. You know, but they were, they were, sometimes they could be used. The other side of Reconstruction is some wealthier, good people came and built some very fine school, good schools to try to help the, you know, black, free black, you got to realize these people came out of very primitive conditions and there weren't any government programs really to help them too much. There was a Freedsman's Bureau, which tried to help, but it was pretty, you know, it was, it did as, sometimes it did more damage than good. There were people just coming into the South, let's make some money. You know, it was an opportunity for them. This is, that's a very bitter period in the South is what's called the Reconstruction. There's some fine schools were built to try to help African Americans. I think about Lemoyne Owens College in Memphis, Fisk University. 
um, and other schools like that were built here to try to help. And some of these former slaves, considering everything they had against them, did did pull, pull themselves up by their own bootstraps to an extent. But it was a very hard time for most African Americans. And after the war, real solid segregation set in. A Jim, what they call Jim Crow. And that became very, very dominant. You know, and they called it separate but equal. But I grew up here. I know, I know what a, excuse I knew, I know what a colored waiting room at a bus station looked like. The Reconstruction was a bitter period. And that's where you saw these paramilitary groups like the Klan and many other groups kind of rise up. And, you know, uh, Forrest, to his credit, you know, we hear about Nathan. After two years, he dissolved. He saw how wild it was getting. He dissolved it. He ordered it dissolved. Who's that? Nathan Bedford Forrest, because he felt it was getting out of hand. But... Um, some interesting things happened to him in Memphis after the Civil War. But uh, Lincoln was a, but Forrest, uh, he was a, he's a very unusual, he was probably one of the best generals the South had, you know, in the Confederacy. But, but he did, he did sort of, it, you know, he was the sort of the titular head of it, but he did order it dissolved. By 1867, I believe it was dissolved. But there were, you know, people that took the law in their own hands. Vigilante governments and when you have a vigilante groups, you can't control what they do. We now turn to our second guest, William Claude, who will share his perspective. The reason that um, I want to have uh, you on is so I can have as many perspectives as possible on the history of the South and the Civil War and post-Civil War era. And what I really want is to give people an alternate history from what we learn in school. I I was discussing with my co-host how I was raised, you know, I came when I was 15 to America, and what I learned in high school was that the Civil War was about slavery, and that was it. And he was telling me that it was, it was really more a war of secession and the, the the North took a preemptive strike on not allowing the southern states to secede. Would that be a, an accurate depiction from your perspective? Yeah, I, I think so, because, you know, Abraham Lincoln, uh, as soon as he was sworn in um, in, uh, what was it, March of uh, 1861, they had a different... Uh, uh, agenda, calendar agenda uh, in those days, and it didn't change until the 19, what was it, 40s, I think it was. Anyway, most Southerners, as you probably are aware, did not own any slaves. And uh, in fact, uh, the 18th century, the uh, 60 census, will show you that there were more. Uh, free men of color in the South and the North, and many of the states were bad uh, men of color, meaning all women, children, all that, uh, <clears throat> to even reside in their state. So uh, there was also uh, some economic pressure, a lot of economic pressure, because the South was an agricultural um, society. 
as opposed to the north, which was, uh, because of the Industrial Revolution, trending towards an industrial society. And uh, so this had been happening since the Constitution, actually um, since the revolution started in 18, or 1776. And uh, there was some argument in the Continental Congress about when uh, Thomas Jefferson wrote that all men were created equal. They wanted and understood that they didn't think all men were created equal. And uh, that has taken, well, I think you could probably argue that even today they're still fighting for equality. Not all men in the South, and I, I'm, I'm using the term men as opposed to men and women, uh, because men had the political power, as they did in the North. But uh, there were many in the South who uh, did not uh, condone the inequality of slavery. But uh, slavery is used as a, uh, a term that we equate with black people, but even in the history of our country, not all slaves were black or African. Um, some prefer to call them indentured servants if they were white, but it was basically the same as slavery. The people would uh, bond out of jail in England and be sponsored by somebody who would indenture them to, say, seven years and then uh, bring them over. And, and, of course, they owed all the expense that was paid not only to get them out of jail, but for transportation, food, and that sort of thing. So they tended to think of them as lesser people. <clears throat> but that goes way back, you know. Let's talk about the, the repercussions or how the South has felt the outcome of the Civil War. So what what are the things that Southerners are still uh, concerned about or feel that the South uh, did not get a good deal on after the Reconstruction? Well, you have different levels of concern. There are people who really think that they would like to go back to the Civil War days and have a complete uh, cut between the countries, a uh, uh, severance uh, of the countries, the Confederate States and the Union. Uh, I don't think the South would have been able to succeed in their secession uh, because they had very little industry back in, in the 1860s and did not develop it until money came from the, the North to uh, open up. Uh, things like cotton mills, which had been in the north, but then they finally brought them down south. We have a steel industry in uh, Alabama, um, right here in Lawrenceburg, well, south of Lawrenceburg. We had a mining industry uh, in coal. And uh, so uh, I think because the of uh, the union's persistence on on this, uh, 
that we were able to save the South. So do you agree with people that say that the Confederate battle flag has been hijacked by radical groups? What's your perspective on that? Yeah, I think so. The the reason that the uh, battle flag came a, a, around, and the proper name would be the Beauregard battle flag, it was uh, touted by uh, Pierre Toussaint, Gustave, PTG, or B, uh, Beauregard, who was a uh, general from Louisiana who commanded the troops at Charleston when they demanded the surrender of Fort Sumter. Now, there had been other battles before that. For instance, uh, down in Florida, there was a uh, uh, capture by southern troops, they were state troops, uh, of Fort Barrancas in Pensacola, and uh, other little arsenals and forts uh, around the south. Uh, even in Texas, there were many forts that were abandoned by the North simply because most of the troops there were Southern Southern men, and they um, basically decided that since war had been declared or was about to be declared, they would go back East and join their state uh, militias or whatever. Uh, one of the more famous ones uh, was a lieutenant named John Bell Hood, and he uh, uh, he got a reputation of being a Texan, although he was from Kentucky, and and he was reckless in many ways, but he was what would have been called in those days a cavalier. At the first Battle of Manassas. Um, they use what is called the stars and bars for the Confederate flag. I don't know if you've ever seen one of these, but it was the first national flag for the Confederacy. And what it was <clears throat> was about the size of a regular um, American flag, stars and stripes, but it only had uh, three bars, red, white, and red, with a blue field and to begin with, seven stars, because that, that was the original Confederacy, and they soon adopted 13. Well, that was because they hoped that some border states would have joined them, but they never did. And um, in those days, the different militias would wear blues or grays, whatever they had, uh, and both North and South wore blues and grays, and soldier who would dress up in sort of a North African garb where he had uh, pants that uh, um, were bloused at the boot, which is usually about the ankle. Uh, and then they would have uh, belly bands and they would have loose-fitting shirts and, and uh, short jackets. And some of them would wear uh, fezes you know, it's, it's like a Shriner wears. And they would uh, be armed, usually uh, they armed themselves with the same type of weapons. They were uh, single-shot rifles or muskets. And they would have uh, long knives or swords sometimes. And both sides did this. 
<clears throat> and uh, they would go into battle. Well, at the Battle of First Manassas, or Bull Run, that's what the North called it, um, there was some confusion, and the Confederates uh, were standing ground when an, a uh, Southern unit wheeled in to fight Southern troops. And so the generals decided they needed something distinctive because the stars and bars in in battle with all kinds of smoke, basically all you could tell was the colors, red, white, and blue, on both sides. So there were some uh, Union soldiers that shot Union soldiers that they thought were Confederate soldiers and vice versa. And so they went into a committee in, in Richmond and, decided that they would have this square-looking flag that would be called the battle flag. And it was a simple uh, red field with a cross of St. David's. And that's uh, what you see in uh, Welsh or Scotland uh, when they don't have their British flag up. They have this um, single cross, and it's like an X. Uh, Robert E. Lee did want it uh, as a pink background. He thought that would be distinctive, and of course pink was more cavalier, you know, bright colors. And uh, they did that uh, shortly after the first Manassas, and uh, they could tell then who the Confederates were, both sides, you know, because they've got that battle flag up there. Now, in Tennessee, they use what is called a naval ensign uh, because it's more rectangular than square. And that was simply a logistical mix-up because when uh, John Bell Hood needed uh, battle flags, they sent him what they had, and all they had was naval ensigns. So that's why it's different over here than it is in the East, where they had the square flag. And uh, after the war, it, it certainly became a symbol uh, for heritage. And um, a lot of people still, when you see these uh, pickup trucks going around town with uh, the uh, Confederate battle flag uh, flying in the in the uh, you know uh, a pole from the bed of the truck. Uh, they don't know either way. <laughs> Most of them don't know history anyway. So, so what is the heritage, and what are the things that they're proud of? That that they're proud of. Um, well, I can't speak for every person of Southern descent, but uh, I think they're proud of their independence because you have to realize independence was achieved before. Lincoln was inaugurated, okay? The uh, seven Confederate states, future Confederate states, met in Montgomery, Alabama in January of 1861 to formalize their secession. There is nothing in the Constitution at that time that said you cannot secede. Uh, A very good example of a Southern way of thought if they think about it at all, is given in uh, the Turner movie, Gettysburg, where General Pickett is waiting to charge on the last day, and he's talking to this Englishman about the Confederacy and how it came about. 
Now, Pickett was one of those men. I think he was stationed in California in 1860 when he left to go back east to Virginia. He was a Virginian. And, uh, you know, joined the, the forces, the Confederate forces. But uh, he explained it to this. Uh, the guy was actually a, a colonel in the British Army who was there as an observer. And he was explaining to him that uh, the nation was created sort of like a club, that you had these 13 clubs, that uh, individual clubs that had sovereignty, and they wanted to join for economic uh, purposes and defense purposes, too. I mean, there were, you know, the more people you have to defend you, the better you feel about it sometimes. But <clears throat> anyway... Um, he explained that if you decide that you want to leave the club, you simply resign and leave. Well, all the Confederate states did this, uh, except Tennessee. Now, Tennessee was given a choice uh, very clearly because in the spring of 1861, uh, Tennessee voters decided not to leave the Union. And their governor, Isham Harris, at the time, uh, was a secessionist. So he was waiting for the right moment to bring the vote back and see if they would change their mind. Well, as it was in, in March, uh, Abraham Lincoln sends a telegram to Isham Harris demanding that, the, that Tennessee provide two regiments. Now, this is probably around 5,000 men, uh, to put down the rebellion, as he called it. And Isham Harris made it known to the rest of the population. They had a vote in June of 1861, and the majority went over to the secession side. Not everybody. Now, you'll find that most people in East Tennessee at that time wanted to stay in the Union. Most people in the west part of Tennessee, where most of the plantations were, uh, and, and the larger black populations, wanted to um, leave the Union. And those in middle Tennessee were mixed. Some did, some didn't. So uh, when, when they decided in June, there was already a provisional Confederate army so that... Uh, uh, some people had joined uh, already, and of course, when it became the Confederate States Army, um, they got regular commissions or enlistments. That, uh, and they had short enlistments sometimes because people didn't think it would last for three months. You know, the rebellion. Only it wasn't really a rebellion. My point of view is that they had seceded legally. And they were just trying to keep the Yankees out of the state. <laughs> you know, they didn't want to go under martial law. And by this foreign power, we went from being the United States of America to, I mean, not from the, from this United States of America to the United States of America. And the um, rule, if you will, that we, could never secede again. 
And I think it would have been a horrible mistake if the South had won that war, uh, simply because I do not think that they could have survived. Now, if you're interested in a very small book that would explain that position, and I read it as a teenager, it was by a man named McKinley Cantor, who has written many Civil War books. And it's called If the South Had Won the Civil War. And he projects through the 1950s with the uh, advance of uh, Russian communism uh, what what would have happened to the uh, two and then three states that were um, or nations that were created out of the United States of America. That was the Republic of Texas, which broke away from the Confederacy, the Confederate States of America, and the United States of America. So, if, if you want a different view on it. So what happened during the Civil Rights Movement? Why did the Confederate battle flag come to the forefront then? Well, I'm, I'm sure that uh, people probably, black people especially, thought of it as a, uh, a racist point of view because the Klan had uh, taken over its youth. There was nobody really there to uh, uh, oppose them, uh, you know, the Klan from taking it over. It was ab- absolutely a free speech type of uh, uh, um, problem. Because how can you say that a person cannot display their thoughts in a flag, you know? Um, People want a symbol of what they believe in, or better, what they think they believe in. And so the blacks see that, I believe, as a symbol of hate and somebody who is anti-black. When, when you look at it from a historical point of view, um, you don't see that at all. It's just a symbol. Well, how come the non-racist whites of the South did not speak up when the, the Klan or the Dixiecrats used that as a symbol of you know, keeping segregation alive? Well, you going back to the Dixiecrats, that was in the 1940s. And, of course, remnants of them have lasted, uh, although they're much uh, uh, in the minority today. They want to, uh, much like the, what do you call them, the neocons, the new confederates, uh, they want to, to bring something about that can't possibly survive. They don't have the economy to do it. And if if a nation needs one thing, it's a decent economy to become successful. You know, so anyway, that's that's why those Dixiecrats and um, some used to be Democrats in the South because they became Democrats. The, the South never had any Republicans until modern times. And I, when I say modern times, I'm talking about from... FDR on. Uh, my father was one of the first Republican Southerners <laughs> in the country because uh, he didn't like the Democrat program. People have different agendas. You've got to dig into their agendas to find out where they're coming from as to what 
what they think they believe. And I, I emphasize the, what they think they believe simply because it is my posture that most people don't know why they do things. Uh, in the South, the, the South became uh, almost thoroughly democratic after the uh, war because they did, they blamed the Republicans for bringing about the loss of the war and uh, the enforcement of uh, the 13th and 14th Amendments. You know, uh, they wouldn't let the southern states back into the Union until they all ratified the 13th and 14th Amendment. Was there an abolitionist movement in the South? You know, I want to say that there probably was here and there, but they were not very vocal. Why do you think they weren't able to get any headway? Well, because the South was agricultural. They needed labor, and they didn't think they could afford to pay people to labor in a cotton field, because cotton was king in those days. And if you ever get a chance to go pick cotton... Um, make sure you wear gloves <laughs> because cotton is a prickly plant and it will tear your fingers up when you pick it. But now they do it with machines. So, you know, and, and I, I think deep down that all human beings, uh, before they start thinking about it, want to know that they're not the lowest form of humanity. Therefore, the poor whites in the South were one step above the slave in the South. You know? And I think that's part of the, the mix there that, they're, they, that they will uh, go along with some political leaders, because absolutely it was a political and economic decision for slavery. Now, slavery started in Virginia in 1619. That was when the first Dutch ship came to Jamestown with some African slaves. That's when it started in, in the United States. Before that, they had the indentured servant and white slaves because the, the owner of the indenture would try to keep them on as much as possible. Cost less. Labor costs were less. Although in the end, if you, about the time of the Civil War, if you bought a, a really good, healthy black man to work in your fields, you might pay a couple of thousand dollars. And a couple of thousand dollars in those days was a lot of money because people would make maybe, they'd be lucky if they made $200 a year. So that would be several years' worth of, of income. So they had to be rich, although not just the rich uh, because some middle-class people might own one or two slaves. Um, they would uh, have a, a small farm, and I'm talking about, say, 50 acres or less, and one person can hardly um, carry on business as a farmer 
of just by himself or with his children. Some did, yes, they did, but not many were able to. So they would eventually get a slave, and the slave would uh, live um, pretty close to the uh, uh, farmer, and uh, he would make sure that he was fed and uh, taken care of as far as his medical condition was concerned. Sometimes they might even be concerned with their soul, you know, and let them get a little preaching. And uh, then he could feel better about himself and say, well, you know, I'm a Christian slave owner. And, of course, in the uh, Old and New Testament, it says that, uh, you, you know, it doesn't say anything negative about slavery, except it says, do treat your slaves right. You know, so they thought they were doing one thing. Um, there's a writer that I'm uh, particularly fond of. His name is Louis L'Amour. He's long dead, but he wrote a lot of uh, books, uh, about 150 books. And I have most of them in my living room. And he made one observation about history. He said, do not try to judge the past by our modern concepts. You have to get in their shoes and try to think their way as to why they did certain things. So I try to remember that, but then I might put in a dig or two about, well, they could have done it better, you know. Well, I, I just had another interview where I asked uh, a scholar, um, what would you tell young people that say that history is not important, that living in a world of technology, living in a world where you can connect with people all over the world that and have the latest information, why study your heritage? There was a, there was a philosopher there was a philosopher one time named Santana who uh, said this and Arnold Toynbee, who was a professor at Harvard uh, for a long time, said this he who fails to read history and understand it are destined to repeat it. Definitely. Um, any parting thoughts on the whole history of the Civil War and the Confederate battle flag that you'd like to share? I would, I would agree with you that they do not teach it enough. You can go to recent high school graduates and even college graduates unless they've taken United States history from a decent professor, uh, that they know very little about their own history. Of course, a lot of people, their um, tenure in the United States begins when their immigrant ancestor comes over, and that might be even as late as the 1970s. You know, so it may not be of interest to them. But it is always of interest if you want to avoid that kind of conflict again. My uh, my expansion in uh, into history uh, has always lain in uh, Central America. I just got back there a couple of weeks ago, and um, so and it's amazing how they have parallels to what we've been through. Thank you for listening. This is The Mystic and the Skeptic. We will be back next week with another show. The Mystic and the Skeptic can now be heard on Radio Free Nashville, Wednesdays at noon, WRFN, Pasquale 103.7 and 
96.1 FM in Nashville, Tennessee. Or you can listen to our show online at RadioFreeNashville.org. I know. I- 